Hymn number 313, Brother Randall has selected and asked us to mark, and certainly we're happy to do that. And as we give some thought to the character of our lesson this morning, perhaps it would be wise to make a few comments or notes about the title as I have selected it. Certainly it's never an intent, never the desire to select or choose some particular title that's difficult to understand or that is in fact sufficiently unfamiliar to be a problem. And thus, with regard to that word, you may have heard about premillennialism at some point. Perhaps you have been involved with it by hearing it taught or expressed by others. It will be my goal this morning, hopefully, to employ that word in a way and to also use it in such a fashion that beginning today we'll have an opportunity to study it in some detail, to break that thought down into its basic matters and parts and look at each one in a proper fashion with regard to the Word of God. It is with thoughts like that in mind I would point out some introductory comments to you. What's going to happen at the end of time? What sorts of events and what will be the order and the frequency with which matters will come to pass as time draws near to its end? Without doubt, one of the most sensational topics that one can discuss is the end of time. As you walk through the grocery store lines, it seems as though those tabloid magazines frequently have on it matters or topics that draw us to appreciate somebody is saying something about what is supposedly going to transpire at the end of time. With that kind of sensational issue set before us, it's also not shocking that there are many who teach and preach relative to that subject. In fact, there are those who almost always find a way to work that into the topic at hand since there are so many who are interested in it and since there are so many who have a great matter of captivation with respect to it. Furthermore, as you give some thought to that word I just used, captivating, there are those in our world who will sit spellbound for hours reading books like Jerry Jenkins and Tim LaHaye's Left Behind series. One of the most popular literary ex-escapades in recent history. Now I think they're well into the 11th or 12th or 13th book in the series. And they keep selling out. It jumps to the top of the New York Times bestseller list. The world is interested in knowing what will the end of time be like. Many people have heard bits and pieces from a preacher, from a book, from somewhere else, and they're interested to know what will the end of time be like. Perhaps many are interested from the perspective of knowing, are there signs that tell us when it's going to be? Is it soon? Is it in the next few years? After all, are there not those based upon the writings of Nostradamus who are telling us the year 2012 will be the end of time? There are even movies that are shortly to come out based upon the premise that Nostradamus proclaimed and set forth the fact that the world will end in the year 2012. It is with all thoughts like that in mind, I thought it wise for us to at least invest some attention to a study of the end of time. And we'll do so under the heading of premillennialism. As we do that, beginning today and continuing for several Sundays to come, we will seek to break apart piece by piece the premillennial ideas, look at them from the perspective of the Word of God, and ultimately ask the question, is that what the Scriptures teach? If it isn't, we will seek to revise it using the Word of God as our theme and seek to give ourselves a complete and correct picture based on the Word of God of what shall unfold as time draws near its end. 
However, we should rest assured and perhaps not consider it as disappointing that so much of what premillennialism claims and so much of what the world sets before us is nothing more than human speculation. We shall find the Bible does not substantiate it. We shall find that the scriptures do not endorse it. In fact, in many instances, we will find the scriptures oppose it. And thus, as we strive to understand this issue better, it would be my hope that all of us can be drawn closer to the beautiful understanding of what is involved in what God's Word says on this subject. With that said, let's now ask a bit more about that premillennialism idea. We certainly today will only in an introductory way begin our thinking. But that word premillennialism is a long word. It's composed of two principal parts. There's the letters P-R-E, the prefix pre. Then there's the central word millennium, M-I-L-L-E-N-N-I-U-M. And then at the end, there's an I-S-M that turns it into a descriptive noun. With all of that said, the two principal parts... The word millennium simply comes from a Latin word that means 1,000. That's all it means is 1,000. And thus, in the ancient world, when the Italians, the Latins, if you please, meant to refer to 1,000, they would say millennium. And so today, we understand there are many things for which that word still has a role to play. For those who might remember your, your schooling, a millimeter is such that 1,000 of them makes a meter. Thus, again, the usage of something related to the word thousand. In addition to that, the word pre, the prefix pre, just means before. So all the notion about premillennialism means that it is descriptive of something that is to happen, and in this case, it's a thousand years, as it relates to the Lord's second coming. Interesting, isn't it? All of that long word just means something that happens before the thousand. Today, as we begin the discussion of that and continuing over the weeks to follow, please, as we have our Bibles present and ready, we will look at a number of passages that help us understand the greatness of the authority that rests in this topic. And it is that thought that it seemed to me worthy to begin our study today. And so, might I ask you over the next few moments to think with me about the matter of authority as it relates to the end of time as it relates to what shall befall the world on that occasion, and as it relates to how one should teach correctly these subjects related to the end of time. What does the word authority mean? If you just retrieve a dictionary and look up the word authority, it simply means the following, the power or right to command or to act. The power or the right to command or to act. And furthermore, it can be used to refer to an individual or to an entity that possesses that power. Interestingly, we, of course, are well aware that there are many positions and seats of authority. In the home, God has vested that authority in the parents, hasn't he? It is they who have the authority in the sense of the capability to act or to command in regard to the affairs of that household. The children haven't been given that authority. If they are blessed by God, the time will come they will have their own families and homes and that will then be their lot. In matters of civil character, we understand there are those that possess authority. Policemen, judges, and other officials, they have been given by law the capability to act and to command. 
We even understand that in a host of other ways. In the school systems, principals and teachers have been given that authority. They, in the classroom, have the right to command and to give instruction, if you please. When it comes to athletics, aren't we aware the coach has that right? It is he who commands and the players are supposed to follow that which he commands, at least if they're going to make him happy. But with regard to any or all of those ideas... Perhaps you and I should give some thought about what happens when that authority is ignored. What happens when it's neglected? We realize in the civil case it leads to anarchy. It leads to chaos. It leads to pandemonium. So too it does in the world of religion. Is there an authority in religion when it comes to the end of time? Who, in fact, has the right to speak authoritatively and to speak with commandment relative to the end of time? In fact, their lesson this morning sets before us the thought of attempting to unfold that idea. And I believe we can already begin to appreciate that when it comes to religion, authority is just as important as it is in all of these other realms of life. Society, the home, the school system, athletics, we understand about the need for authority. If things are to take place rightly and in a way that leads to an orderly understanding. And so today when we turn on our TV and we appreciate these sensational and eloquent speakers who have this grand theme and this grand scheme about the end of time and they speak so seemingly boldly about the nation of Israel. What's going to happen? The Jews will in fact do this. They can weave together a story that is not only captivating, it garners the attention both mentally and financially of multiplied millions around this world. Over the next few weeks as we unfold this saga of what the Bible teaches about the end of time, we will come again to appreciate that the authority is singularly and solely vested in the Word of God. It is here in which we find that set forth. And it is today that we need to firmly cement in our mind, it seems, the very notion of that idea. And so it is to Mark chapter 11 that I would ask you to turn. As we look at the scene that's told to us in Mark 11, we find a scene that is truly remarkable. It is absolutely fascinating. We will not read the entirety of that chapter, but this, these are the highlights of what we see. When we come to the 11th chapter of the gospel according to Mark, we have arrived at the very last week of the Lord's life on earth. His last week living in the flesh. On Sunday of that week, the first day of the week, the Lord entered into the city of Jerusalem and He did so very humbly, certainly not in a way that was pompous or arrogant. He simply rode in riding on the back of the colt of a donkey. In the instructions that the Lord had given relative to bringing that into play as he entered into that city, that situation on Sunday, of course, was only a mark of what was to come later that week. He really was a king, wasn't he? He really was the incarnate Son of God and had all authority and all power. In fact, as we appreciate the things that were to unfold, that was Sunday. You'll notice in this chapter as you arrive at verse number 15, we find some events that happened on Monday of that week, the very next day. In fact, reading verses 15, 16, and 17, notice with the authority that the Lord used in his actions. It says, And they come to Jerusalem, 
And Jesus went into the temple and began to cast out them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves and would not suffer that any man should carry any vessel through the temple. And he taught, saying unto them, Is it not written, My house shall be called of all nations the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. As we have frequently made reference and note of what the Lord did on that occasion, picture or visualize it in your mind if you can. Here was Monday this so-called Passion Week in the life of our Lord. As Jesus came into the temple that day, He witnessed and saw that which was commonplace in that day and time. There were money changers positioned here. There were others that sold doves. There were, in fact, as verse 15 begins, there were those that bought and sold. What did they buy and sell? Various and sundry varieties and versions of animals solely for the purpose of individuals that came. They could thus exchange their particular money from that distant locality into the money that those changers would accept. They could then buy the animals and proceed to have them sacrificed. In essence, you'll notice the temple had turned into nothing but a business. And the Lord firmly set forth the idea, my house is supposed to be a house of prayer. You have turned it into a den of thieves. The Lord was unhappy. He drove out the money changers, overturned their tables, drove out those that sold doves, drove out those that bought and sold. In his attempt to cleanse the temple, he acted with authority. Picture again the thought. Here were all these Jews scattered around, acting in ways with which they were accustomed. And yet here comes Jesus, drives them out, sends the animals away, turns over their tables. He acted with authority with respect to that temple. Needless to say, word of what he had done got out fast. So fast that the next day, the chief priests, the scribes, and others questioned Jesus about what he had done. Who gave you the authority to do this? You might note expressly the language of verse 28. This again was Tuesday the next day. Seven, that the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to him. And then they asked him this question in verse 28. By what authority doest thou these things? And who gave thee this authority to do these things? You see, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders and those present were well aware of the fact that it was necessary to have some authority in order to carry out legitimately the things that Jesus had done. They ask, where did you get this authority? Who gave it to you? They understood well with regard to that authority that it was necessary in matters of religion to act with appropriate authority. To fail to do so, in fact, is to run asunder from the truth. That thought with regard to authority is certainly not something that we should see as new today. It is still that way, isn't it? In Acts, the fourth chapter, verse 7, notice another place in which the same thought is set forth. Here, Peter and John were under great trial and difficulty because of the healing that had been done with regard to the lame man at Solomon's porch previously. In chapter 4 then of Acts, when the authorities ask this question, they ask, by what authority or by what name have you done this? Notice, even the individuals again were well aware of the necessity of authority. My friend, today we still should appreciate the need for authority. 
in every act of religion without appropriate authority, we are acting inappropriately. We are acting without book, chapter, and verse to back us up on that which is being said or done. Hence, when we appreciate the answer that the Lord gave them, we will finish that saga in a moment, but notice what Jesus said. After they asked him about where he got his authority, notice what he said. Verse 29, Jesus answered and said unto them, I will also ask of you one question, and answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. When they asked the Lord for the source of his authority, he responded by saying, I also will ask you a question, and upon your answer, then I will be able, I will in fact reveal to you the authority and its source with which I act. The question Jesus asked was this in verse 30. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or of men? Answer me. That's a straightforward, simple, easy to appreciate question. The baptism of John, he said, was it from heaven or is it from men? And immediately as the curtain so bountifully opens before us, we have a very powerful recognition with regard to the baptism of John, there were only two potential sources of authority. Jesus said it's either from heaven or it's from men. And he merely asked them, which is it? Now, as we ponder the nature of their thinking, in verses 31 and 32, they in thought reasoned as follows. If we say that that was from heaven, if we respond to this Jesus that in fact the baptism of John was an echo from heaven, it was the will and majesty of the revelation of God, then his immediate response to us will be, why did you not believe him? And why did you then not follow in the steps of being baptized as he commanded? So they were unwilling to answer, it's from heaven. On the other hand, they reasoned, if we say that baptism was only of men, if it had no authority higher than simply humanity, then the people are going to be angry because the people respect John as a prophet. The people have great honor and character with respect to who he was. Thus, for failure of distancing themselves from the people, they were unwilling to say that it's from men either. And hence, they were unwilling to answer either way. Notice how the Lord finished it. Verse number 33. They answered and said unto Jesus, We cannot tell. Jesus answering saith unto them, Neither do I tell you by what authority I do these things. With regard to this lesson, might you and I note ever so clearly that with regard to any matter of religion, any issue, be it a particular act or a particular work or a certain program, there are only two potential sources of authority for it. It is either from heaven or it's from men. There is no third alternative. There is no third option. And that sets before us the grand and dire realization that with regard to the end of time, you and I need to speak with heaven's authority on this subject. You and I should have no interest in what men may think or what others may proclaim or what someone in the fancy of his or her mind has set forth. Remember, Jesus said the baptism of John, it's either from heaven or it's from men. Of course, we understand that John was a prophet and it was from heaven, but these men, these who listened, were too steep in their own opinion to recognize and admit it. 
perhaps as you and I give some thought then, where is heaven's authority expressed? Is it expressed in the words of the Pope? Is it expressed in the words of certain things and books that men have written? Is it expressed in the deep recesses of an individual's mind? Again, the question, where is heaven's authority expressed? May I submit to you the Bible doesn't leave us to wonder to the answer to that question. As you look at the next screen with me, we learn very clearly the very top statement that heaven's authority is expressed singularly and uniquely and solely in the Holy Bible. And thus, with regard to the end of time, it is to this book that we must look to gain any true conception of what shall happen, the order of the events, what will transpire, and the way it shall do so. And it should be this book that serves as the guide. All of these ideas that men set forth relative to a whole host of geopolitical matters, like 1948 and the founding of the nation of Israel, we'll look at that before the series is over. What did that have to do with it? If anything at all, we'll let the Bible answer. With regard then to the end of time, matters of religion, what do the scriptures say? Does it endorse premillennialism? If not, what is the alternative? May I submit to you on this sheet a number of passages that help us see that the Bible is the expression of a God's authority. In fact, noticing first of all the inspired statements of Romans 15.4, with regard to the Old Testament, the inspired apostle therein affirmed that whatsoever was written aforetime was written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. That which was written aforetime, Paul wrote, was written for our learning. In the verses that follow, Paul lifted that highly quoted from it and based some powerful, correct teaching upon it. In 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17, the, that peerless apostle affirmed that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God might be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. May we pause and ask this question. With regard to matters related to the end of time, is it not our desire to be complete? That is to state the matter accurately, precisely, and correctly. It should be, but yet Paul just wrote, you and I are made complete through the word of God. Thus, it must be to this book and it only that we can go to speak relative to the end of time. Would it not be fair to state the same matter holds true with regard to other issues in religion? How should you and I worship correctly today? Can we have drums, a guitar, a banjo, and an orchestra if we please? Can we perhaps worship this coming Thursday night if it's more convenient? Can we give as we've been prospered then or take the Lord's Supper if that's better suited to my desire and yours? After all, I might have ball games on Friday and Tuesday. I might have other kinds of meetings on Monday and Saturday. You see, when you and I are left to our own devices and to wonder about what can be used to construe religion and we make ourselves the authority... That means we are ignoring heaven's authority. It is to this book we must go in any and all matters religious to learn, in fact, that the usage of mechanical instruments of music is wrong in worship. It is in that way we learn that the taking of our means or the usage of the Lord's Supper on other days in the first day of the week is, in fact, a sinful matter. 
it is not that which God endorses. When those things are used to help us see even about the plan of salvation, what must you and I do to be saved? Is that left to our devices? That should be the single most important question that we would ask. Thankfully, the Bible answers it. It is authoritative. You'll notice also on that screen I've listed some other questions or at least other passages for you to consider that drive home for us the point of the Scripture's authority. When Jesus was tempted in Matthew the fourth chapter, it's still a fascinating thing to behold that when he was tempted to turn stones into bread, when he was tempted, in fact, to cast himself off the pinnacle of the temple, and when he was tempted, in fact, to bow before Satan, in every instance, what did the Lord do? He did not work a miracle. And yet there are those today who think that miracles are the most powerful things there are. The Lord worked no miracle. There are those who think that speaking in tongues or other things like that is vital. The Lord did not speak in tongues. He quoted verbatim three times from the Word of God, and the devil was sent on his way. Is there anything else than that that may help us see the authority that's vested in the Word of God? The authority that's inherent within it? Perhaps it should be noted also the Lord's response to the question the lawyer asked him in Luke 10, beginning in verse 25. The lawyer on that occasion said, What should I do to inherit eternal life? Now there's a straightforward religious question. What should I do to inherit eternal life? What did the Lord respond? He responded, Thou knowest the commandments. Keep the commandments. The Scriptures contain the information relative to the authority of heaven. Thus, we do greatly make mistake when we seek to answer matters relative to the end of time anywhere else. And sadly, men have done that so often. I suspect some of us will be shocked over the weeks to come as we look in detail at what men have taught about the end of time. When we've learned, when we see what men, in fact, today will boldly proclaim in the hearing of multiplied thousands. Men will begin websites and write books and take in literally thousands and millions of dollars for what you and I will find is nothing but error. It is not what they think. What they think shall happen is not going to happen. And I do not speak that arrogantly. I speak that because I know it because the Bible says it won't happen. May you and I then with intensity ask, what does the Bible say about the end of time? Perhaps nextly you might notice the rich young ruler of Matthew 19 when he asked Jesus about being good and about being pleasing before God. Notice Jesus again pointed him to what the Scriptures say. Today when there are those who thus ask us about standing right before God and seeing the authority, may we never take it to ourselves, but realize it does rest with God. Many passages teach directly the matter we've just set forth. I would ask you to note one of them in particular. In 1 Thessalonians 4.15, in fact, that's a passage dealing directly with the end of time. It's a passage dealing directly with the issues before us in this series. And Paul very carefully wrote it like this. For this, he said, speaking about those matters of the end of time, he said, for this, by the word of the Lord, will happen as follows. Notice Paul said it's by the word of the Lord. Paul, where'd you get your authority? By the word of the Lord. What's going to happen? Paul said it'll be this way, but it's by the word of the Lord. 
may you and I thus with happiness speak too with a thus saith the Lord in these matters. Furthermore, you might notice in Second Peter 3.16, there we learn that interesting thing about the danger of twisting the Word of God, using it to teach what it does not teach. We should be quick to say, and I shall attempt to do so as nearly as I can, there are those with regard to this end of time matter that will use some passages of the Bible, but as we shall find, they are not used correctly. They are used in ways that contradict others, and they're used in ways that do injustice to the text. We will need to point those out and look with care at what the texts do teach and see the clear and concise message of the Word of God. Near the bottom of that slide, it will be useful for us perhaps as this lesson draws near its conclusion to think a little bit about what some of those alternate sources of authority that some people use. Rather than going to the Bible, what do they often turn to and where do they seek to find information? We might well begin with themselves or with humanity as a whole. Naaman is a good example of that, isn't he? In 2 Kings chapter 5, in that interesting story of the long past, here was a leper. Admittedly, he was a Syrian person who had great position in terms of military rank, but he was a leper. He was afflicted with that terrible disease of leprosy. However, he came to learn that there was a prophet in Israel who could do something about it. Naaman proceeded, in fact, to Israel in the hope of being cleansed of that leprosy. When he came to the place of Elisha's abode, Elisha merely sent a messenger to him and informed him to go and wash seven times in the Jordan River. And then we come to verse 11 of 2 Kings 5. It says Naaman was wroth. Naaman was beside himself with rage and anger, and the first words out of his mouth were, Behold, I thought. I thought. I thought it was going to be something different than this. I expected something different. I thought. And immediately we encounter one of the most famous statements of error in all the world. I thought. With regard to the end of time, I think. With regard to the end of time, I suppose. Friend, there is no reason for you or for me to think or to suppose relative to it in many ways. We need to just let God tell us. Let him explain it, and let him set it forth before us. So let us not be quick to make that error of I think, because there are many who in their thinking have veered from the truth of God. In addition to I think, in Mark 7, verses 6 through 13, we learn another source that some appeal to for authority. As opposed to themselves, they appeal to religious figures reverends and pastors and other kinds of leaders, if you please. Notice that Jesus addressed a scene like that in this seventh chapter of Mark. In verses 6 through 13, there were those religious folks, religious leaders, the so-called teachers and pastors and reverends of that day who were teaching things that were wrong. The Lord corrected them. And he did so with boldness and courageousness. And as he did so, he ended with this statement. He said, this people draweth nigh to me with their heart, and with their lips they draw to me. But notice he said, in firmness and in directness, he said, when you substitute the commandments of men for the doctrines of God, you have erred. 
because they teach for doctrine the commandments of men. Notice again, where's the authority in that statement? Jesus said it's not the commands of God. He said it's the commands of men that they teach. The authority went no deeper and no further than men. And may I submit that those who submit to the commandments of men today relative to the end of time are just as much as in error as those were in Mark chapter 7. You see, what men proclaim and what men may think is of really no great significance with respect to the end of time or any other Bible subject. Perhaps a third source to which some will turn. These famous belief systems or creed statements of the distant past the Philadelphia Confession of Faith, for example, would be one. As that was set forth, perhaps with some degree of nobility and interest in days past, men have elevated such statements to official statements of doctrine that in fact reign supreme even over the Word of God. Friend, what a tragedy. You notice in Second Thessalonians 2 verse 2, Paul addresses that matter as well. Notice he's, he wrote the Thessalonians, there were those who had sent a letter in Paul's name. They had forged a letter in the name of the Apostle Paul and it claimed that the second coming of Christ was close. Paul wrote to them and said, I didn't say that. He wrote to them and said, that letter was supposedly from me. I didn't write it. Today, may we be well aware then that those creeds of the distant past or even of the modern day that are merely from the pen of man, are not to be taken as authoritative. Notice Jesus again said, authority, it's either from heaven or it's from men. There is no other place. When we give some thought then to the authority from heaven, perhaps one final category, there are some who think their family members have the authority of heaven, it seems. What dad or mother did, what my family's heritage has been, what our tradition is, must be right because we've always done it. That doesn't seem like sound logic. Just because we've always done it, we could have always been wrong. And so may you and I appreciate that with regard to authority, how I must act and how you must act and what the end of time will be like, we can only turn to the Word of God. Perhaps in summary to the lesson this morning, we might be able to revisit and highlight some of the main features. Some of the things that you and I have so interestingly seen is that when it comes to matters of spirituality and religion, there are only two possible sources, either from heaven or from men. And when it comes to that authority from heaven, it is vested solely, singularly, and uniquely in the Word of God, nowhere else. Thus, we ought not then wait for a dream or a hallucination or a small, still voice to speak to us in the recesses of the night. For we still learn, do we not, from the words of Jesus, when God specifically said to him, Thou art my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, hear ye him. Thus, Jesus' words, Jesus' words are found in this book. It is in that book, then, we find the vested authority of heaven. Today, where have you based your life in terms of authority? Is it based upon the sureness of the rock of the revelation of God? Or is it based on the shifting sands of human thinking? The, in fact, non-solid character of what men may have said. Again, as we move through this series of lessons, our goal will be to use this book with book, chapter, and verse to tell us about premillennialism, what the end of time will be like. 
Suffice it to say, there is going to come a time, that time will end. And when it does, you and I, we are taught in the Scriptures, must be ready. There will be no opportunity to get ready then. For it's going to happen in the twinkling of an eye. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 and 52. And when all that set of events unfolds, Jesus has warned us, watch and be ready. Matthew 25, 13. Mark 13, verse 32 tells us that of that day and that hour knoweth no man, neither the angels in heaven, not even the Son of Man. So we must ever and always be ready or else it could happen and we will not have been found ready. Are you ready today? Have you obeyed in fullness the gospel plan of salvation? Have you allowed Christ to add you to his body, the church? There is but one body, one church we're taught in Ephesians 4, 4. Are you a member of it? If Christ didn't add you to it, then you can rest assured you're not a member, for that's the only way into it. Today, in order to be admitted into it by Jesus himself, you need to hear the word of the Lord in truth. Romans 10, verses 13 to 15. You need to believe with all your heart that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Again, as we notice in Mark 16, 16. You need to repent of the sins in your life. That means to change your mind toward those activities. Seek to not do them anymore. And in fact, beseech the forgiveness of God with respect to them. That matter of repentance commanded in Acts 2.38. Then you need to confess Jesus audibly. The simple statement that I believe with all my heart that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. The eunuch made that confession in Acts 8.37. And then finally... An act of submission in which you are buried beneath the surface of water is a reenactment of the very death, burial of Jesus Christ, Romans 6, verses 3 and 4. If today you've never become a Christian, that's what must be done. If we could help you do that today, if we could be honored to be a part of that, we'd be happy to do so. If you have become a Christian, you have known and tasted the goodness of God's Word with respect to that, Hebrews 6, verse 4, but you've drifted away from it. Come back to that first love. The Lord hasn't given up on you yet, for you still have life. There's time for you to make a change. There's opportunity for you to repent, which is what's commanded of you in Acts 8 verse 20. And you need to also confess those errors and sins as we're taught in 1 John 1 verses 8 through 10. Today, if we could pray on your behalf or help you in either of these ways, won't you let it be known as you submit to the authority from heaven, not to the authority of men. And if we could be of assistance, let us do that while together we stand and while we sing.